Welcome to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hello again, everybody. Kim and I are here once again to talk wine with you. And every week, Kim and I also research things on our own that we'd like to tell you about. So, Kim, what did you Google this week? (laughs) So I Googled an area of California in Sonoma called the Russian River Valley because my book club is reading a book that has a fair bit of wine in it, but it's about this made-up author who was part of a writing group that it was called like the Russian River Writers or something like that. So we always bring food and wine and cocktails and things to our book club. So I thought it would be fun if I brought something from the Russian River Valley to book club tonight. And I was thinking about sparkling wine because there was a lot of champagne in this book. And there were only a couple of producers that are available locally to us here in Massachusetts. And I I didn't find anything that I was going to bring tonight. But the most popular, I guess you could say, grape varieties that are grown in that area are Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. So I found a couple of really good Pinots and I'm going to be bringing that to book club. Well, I I don't think it's any coincidence. First, bubbly was the topic and that uh, you find wine in the books that you read. (laughs) Fairly fairly frequently. That's good. And what about yourself? What did you Google this? This week, I was looking up the highest counties in California for pesticide use. I've been on a pesticide thing, Kim, where Mm -hmm. I I just want to see who's using the most. So they had uh, 58 counties in California. Fresno is the number one county, and it's measured in millions of pounds is how they measure pesticide use. Sonoma was number 21, and Napa was number 25. So pretty much in the middle, the most famous regions are pretty much in the middle for pesticide use. So I'm surprised. That Sonoma was so high. Yeah, me too. Being sustainably. Yeah, and they, you know, they've sort of been pushing this, not just this sort of reputation of being sustainable, but I thought that they had some like rules on the books where they were like, by 2020, we're going to be pesticide free or something like that. Yeah, I thought so too, Hmm. but not according to the the data I saw as far as uh, the millions of pounds. So maybe it's low compared to to others, but uh, still a high use. Just a little refresher, Kim, for our listeners, what we do on this show is we get topics in the wine world and we send them to each other and then we pick the what we think are the best ones to talk with our listeners about. So this week, we found an article in the North Bay Business Journal, Kim, that deals with Napa wine grapes and lawsuits resulting in grapes that were damaged due to smoke and what they go through to get insurance coverage or try to get insurance coverage or their money back for their crops. So right. So your take. Yeah. So this is something that we've we've spoken about from time to time. It seems that the last few vintages, there have been significant fire events that have taken place in wine country in California, some where the fires themselves have done serious damage to the winery buildings and the cellars and to the actual vineyards. And then there's this sort of secondary problem that results from the smoke. And that if there are still wine grapes that are on the vines, when these 
these fire events happen, that the smoke can damage and impact the wine grapes themselves. But it's a very tricky and complicated sort of situation because it's hard to figure out which grapes have been damaged and which grapes haven't been damaged. So I went and did a little bit of research about smoke taint specifically so that we can make this a little bit clearer as to why there might be a situation where a grape grower is like, hey, all my fruit is damaged. I can't use this anymore. But that the insurance company might come back at them and say, well, no, we're not going to cover that for, for the type of damage that you have. We talked about this a long time ago, and I think it was, was it 2017 where the fires, Napa fires were so intense? Yeah. And every year you keep hearing about these brush fries that break up, but no one really looks at the impact of what that smoke is doing on these grapes, Kim. And this vineyard was, what was the name of the vineyard? Levlinson? Levlinson? I believe so. I looked them up. They're not, they're not sold in mass, but the vineyard actually had insurance. They figured they lost a million dollars worth of grapes. They went to their insurance company, said, okay, we, we want the insurance on this. And they denied them the claim is my take on it. Mm -hmm. So Kim, tell our listeners what is unique about the the smoke on the grapes. And we talked about it before, but refresh our listeners what happens with smoke taint. So with smoke taint, there are certain compounds in smoke that are these volatile sort of phenolic compounds that can permeate the grape skins. So they it, the smoke lands on the grape, it goes through the skin and into the grape itself. But what happens is that once those compounds come in contact with with the sugar inside the fruit, they form specific molecules that you then can't taste if it's just grape juice. The compound is no longer volatile, so you can't smell it, you can't taste it. So you can't just pick a grape off of one of these vines and taste it and say, oh, this has been smoke tainted, therefore it's not gonna be good to use for wine. What happens is that after fermentation takes place, the chemical reactions that take place during fermentation break those bonds apart so that those compounds are now volatile again. So now you can smell them and now you can taste them. And the only way that you can know if there's a problem is after the wine has already been made. And sometimes it doesn't show up until after the wine has been bottled. Sometimes it doesn't show up until it hits your palate. So there's all of these questions about how do we actually know if there's a problem with our fruit? So I think that that is really scary for a lot of wine growers because how do you know? And there are testing methods out there for scientists to take a sample of your juice and, and maybe figure out if there are these phenolic compounds that have been dissolved inside your grapes. But it's not perfect and it's really hard to do. And the time of year where these forest fires seem to happen in California, because it's right around harvest time, this is the point in the grapes lifespan where it is most susceptible to smoke as well. So there are like, it's like a perfect storm of badness when it yeah. comes to smoke and grapes uh, for these, uh, these poor California. California wineries. Can you imagine that? And we always talk of them as wineries and vineyards. We don't think of them as farmers, which a good chunk of these people are farmers and they're making their living on the crop. So if there's a fire near them, their crop is, is close to harvesting. Then all of a sudden they think, okay, geez, our vineyards didn't burn down. Our crop still looks good. They harvest, they still don't know. They still have to go through the whole process of making the wine. Mm -hmm. And then they discover that it's no good. It has right. this smoke taint. So their whole season is gone. So, so I think that's why a lot of these farmers are like, well, we're not going to take the chance. Like, why waste the resources in making this into wine? And honestly, isn't that why you have insurance to begin with? I mean, th it sounds like they did the right thing. They had insurance in place. They had this incident happened. And so they need that 
that coverage did you for their loss read of their fruit the story why it wasn't covered was it because they fermented it it wasn't no i don't think they said why the insurance it, yeah, company why. denied the claim what do you think about the smoke tape as far as grapes itself with some grapes are thick skin some are thin skin grapes have you ever seen where it impacts one more than the other no i didn't no? see any of that in any of my readings like whether all right maybe pinot noir is more susceptible because it has thinner skins than cabernet which has thicker skins a lot of what was impacted the last time there were these fires out there was cabernet because cabernet was the last thing to be picked and it happened relatively late in the season so i know from reading about those things that yes you know, so even something as thick-skinned as Cabernet is uh, susceptible to this type of damage. Yeah, so I would assume for thin skin, it must be even worse, Maybe. you know. Yeah. But they did see, I, I was researching more insurance purposes for these vineyards. There was something which said this federal subsidized programs for these mm-hmm. vineyards. And it not only does it cover the smoke taint, but it covers like insects, birds, disease. So I think a lot of them were, were getting their own insurance and then going to the federal government and saying they also wanted some level of protection. And they get, I think, 50 to 80% coverage, which is better than nothing. So I guess it's a backup Mm -hmm. to their original insurance uh, plan. So it's sad, though, that they do all this work and then to get denied. I mean, I'm sure we've all personally gone through things with insurance companies where you get insurance on your house, but, you know, for a tree fall. But if it's an oak tree, it's covered, a pine tree, it's not. (laughs) Or it depends, you know, why did the tree fall? It always seems like there's something. So I'm sure that was their situation, but it's just sad that uh, what happens with these people trying to protect themselves and maybe because it's not something that has always happened if it's a relatively newer phenomenon i know that i have this have you heard you did you hear 20 years ago that there was this issue with smoke taint for for wines no i I never even knew that you could get insurance for that type of thing so maybe if it's a newer thing you know it's something where insurance policies have to catch up and it's just one more hazard to be sort of tacked on with the birds and the insects (laughs) I'm just curious Weather. If, if the the coverage is based on do you detect it before it's harvested? Do you detect it after it's harvested? Or you know what I mean? Is it less right. and less as it goes? So how on do you? I mean, and that's what was sort of the the crook of the issue with the research that I did is that there really is no way to tell. So it's almost like you're the the farmer has to be like, well, we don't know if this is a problem, but we don't want to take the chance, and so therefore we're going to dump our crop and submit a claim and hope that everything works out. Interesting stuff, though. Very. listening to The Wonderful World of Wine, and we're your hosts, Mark and Kim. You can find more information about Mark on his website, franklinlickers.com, and more information about myself at vinitaswineworks.com. So a topic that we love to talk about, trends and new things that are happening in uh, in the world of beverage and wine specifically. And you know, every once in a while, we'll run across these articles that, uh, that talk about wine trends, and it'll be like the top five wine trends of the year, or what are some trends that are going I always like hearing those. We always laugh about the top this, the, t- the number <laughs> no. seven, the top And it's 10. usually like a beginning of the year thing, but here we are in the fall and there are already a couple of these coming out. So this one was from foodandbeverage.com and, sorry, foodbev.com and the top wine trend, which was something that we have talked about, especially over the summer, was canned wine. And every once in a while, there are these packaging things that we feel we have to talk about because there's, you know, there's always things that 
are changing when it comes to format of uh, of how alcoholic beverages are packaged. We always talked about cans in the past, about the sizes, the convenience. You had your pool thing about the cans. I think as being both in, in the uh, wine industry, we look at trends and then I kind of get disappointed, Kim, when I see a trend and I think, geez, this, I don't see this happening. And cans to me was something I still haven't jumped on the bandwagon. I still haven't seen. I know you're in the restaurant business, so it doesn't play in the in the restaurant industry. Yeah, it's a non-issue for, for me. So <laughs> as a moment. wine trend, to me, it has to be something, it's retail, it's it's restaurant. Oh, you think it has to be across the I board? I think it has to be across oh, the board to be involved in the whole wine world, the trend. So this was trending. And I think maybe this trend led to the current trend, which seems to be cocktails and cans. People are going to eat more seltzers or more actually in the beer industry leading to cans more than bottles. Uh, but I still don't see any drive to buy wine in cans. Do you but, see it, Kim? That's good to have your perspective. That's um, just what I, I I certainly had more questions from people, uh, especially this past summer, looking for recommendations. Like, what is a good wine in a can? What is something that I can get locally? What are the new hot things that are really tasty? And I think that that's what people were looking for, is sort of what is the best value and what is the best tasting wine that we can get in a can these days. So it, that is where I saw it, is more on a personal level where, you know, people were approaching me and were asking for um, for my advice on, on what to buy. Do you think this is a seasonal trend in wine? Maybe. It seems to have been pushed that way. I think from a marketing angle, the canned wine thing was certainly more, I think, more pushed as bring it with you for on a picnic or to the pool or to the beach or that kind of a thing. So I can't, I don't have as much of an idea that people will be buying some cans of wine and sticking them in their fridge and popping them open next to the fireplace, you know, yeah. in the middle of January. Yeah, pop out a can near the fire. It's yeah. not very romantic. No, not at all. <laughs> well, there is a, a lot trending in the wine world as far as these big wine companies have invested heavily in canning plants. So if you have a winery, you just can't start canning wine. You need a canning line. And if you're doing huge volume, you have to invest some money in developing this manufacturing. So they have invested in it, which makes it almost, they need this to trend. And almost, maybe it's just not, there hasn't reached critical mass yet. So maybe there are still too few on the market for it to have the kind of impact that they're looking for. And once more wineries that people are familiar with are putting their wines out there in these sort of different packaging ideas, then then maybe it will take off a little bit more. So if people are used to getting a certain brand in a bottle and then they see it in a can, maybe they'll take a chance and say, oh, I'll, I'll get a couple of those because, all right, maybe it's a half bottle in that can instead of ha- opening up a full glass bottle and, and then it'll work out that way. So maybe with all of this investment that wineries are doing, that that is what we might see in the upcoming months and years. And there's different levels, too. I think there's the entry level. There's like the barefoot type cans that just convenience. They're fancy packaging. There's almost spritzers. Then there was this trend where people were putting, you know, finer wine in cans, Pinot Noir. And you were paying $9, $10 for a can of wine because it's it's really a half bottle. And people don't think of that when they're, right. when they're chugging it. It's a lot of wine in that can. If you don't normally drink a half bottle of wine, don't, don't chug that can. But what I saw as a retailer was those fine wines in the cans. They might come out at, you know at 15 bucks or, or whatever then they were blowing them out because they just weren't catching on and they wanted people to catch on to them but i haven't seen it take off yet i i, I kind of want some differences in the market but i i just don't see it if, have you seen bottles and james is coming back do you remember bottle and james i do remember bottles and james i did hear something about that so the 
original like wine cooler. Are they wine based? What that's a good question because eventually, well, when they originally came out, it was wine. Because we talked about this before that wine coolers are no longer wine coolers because they're malt based. They were paying more tax, so then they changed it to malt. But now they're bringing back the wine cooler and they're putting in a can, so you can see that on the shelf soon. So (laughs) these old brands, you know, for us old people, are coming back. (laughs) So maybe that's they're trying to jump on the trend, but also bring back an old brand. Interesting. So what was the second thing? So the second one, and this is the one that I see all over the place as definitely trending, is the lower alcohol or no alcohol trend in people's beverage consumption. And this does seem to be something that is taking off more with the younger generation, but I certainly see it a little bit with my generation. And there have been requests in restaurants where people are asking for either wine spritzers that are a little bit lower in alcohol when you do a little bit of wine and a little bit seltzer water you know you you still get a refreshing beverage but it's a little bit uh, a little bit lower in alcohol a little bit lower in sugar and been having these requests for wines that are lower in alcohol so i think this is a an interesting one to watch it's another trend kim where i think people know of non-alcohol or low alcohol beer even liquor but when they don't think of it when it comes to wine so there are a lot of alcohol free wines that are out there that i think people are not familiar with so if the trend is they're becoming popular it's probably because people are just now becoming aware that it is another alternative in the in the liquor industry that there is wine out there and i see we I, we talked about this i think before when we did some health topics but i see a lot of the older generation looking at their health and they might be on meds or something and and they're going to these products so they enjoy them because they like the flavor of a chardonnay but they don't want the alcohol so i kind of agree with this one and mm-hmm. it's trending and non-trending and we're certainly seeing this with those hard seltzers that seem to be all the rage these days so those those not are not pretty particularly super low in alcohol, but lower than than wine would be. So I think that that is, has been something that really kickstarted this trend and uh, we'll see where it goes. Yeah. And this wasn't saying it's healthier. It's saying it's, no, it's lower, lower alcohol. or alcohol free. So yeah. What was next? Kim? Uh, the next is uh, cannabis infused wines. Now I know there's been a lot of chatter about these, but I'm not, I'm not sold. <laughs> Yeah. Honestly, <laughs> which just doesn't to me it doesn't sound appealing yet. It's and it, we don't know even legally on the state level if they're going to ever allow it. Right. There's a strange mass law where you can't cross cannabis with alcohol in the same license. So you're hearing about these cannabis bars that are pop. Well, not bars. They're calling them cannabis shop, not shops. Where you go into a place and just smoke, mm-hmm. smoke shop. I guess cafe, That's cafe. Smoke, yeah, thank cafe. you. Yeah, cannabis cafes. You'll be able to smoke, but you cannot drink alcohol because they. They cannot be in the same place. So I don't think you're ever going to see it allowed where they put cannabis in the wine to be sold. Have you heard of that? So I, I did not know that there was the, the licensing restriction. Yeah. But well, there's the, in, there's the ABC, the Alcoholic Beverage Commission, and then there's the Cannabis Commission. Uh-huh. And from what I hear, they have to be two separate they things. They two can't separate. intermingle. But what if there's a product that's made in a different state? I still think it's a state law that it can't be So sold. meaning that that would not be allowed in the state Correct. to be Now, hemp-based products are legal, but cannabis-based products are not. And that was hmm. that was my understanding of the law in the state right now. But they're changing all the time, and they just allowed delivery of cannabis in, in the state. So I mean, it might be something as it trends. They they have to look at the laws and say it has to be changed. But hmm. to me, I've heard of people making their homemade you know cannabis wines, and I just have no no interest in trying it. Mm-hmm. But it opens up. We talked about this open up avenues for education in the wine world because you're leading to whole new flavors and food pairings. And yeah, I wonder what it smells like. <laughs> Very. 
interesting. Yeah. I bet skunk. <laughs> Maybe a little skunky. Yeah, absolutely. Well, that's interesting. So the next trend is for all things vegan, which is definitely a growing food trend. And I think what this is pointing towards goes back to more and better labeling of wine. So I definitely get people asking me, is this a vegan wine? And usually you don't see it labeled on the bottle, although there are some that do make sure that they put that it's a vegan wine on the bottle. So the way that a wine would not be vegan is if during the fermentation process, there were animal products that were used as fining agents um, or during the filtration process. And really the main one that is used nowadays is egg whites. And in, in the past, there were other sort of funkier things that were used, but for more natural winemaking and for wineries that want to use fewer chemicals and do things a little bit more hands-on, we do see the egg whites that are still uh, still used as a fining agent for a lot of better quality wines. But there are alternatives these days to using those products. So some wineries do make a point of putting on their labels that they are vegan. We scare a lot of people with this one. Kim, you really do. We talk about is your is any I'll ask is anybody in the room a vegan and they'll say why you know <laughs> why, why does that matter? And then you start telling them the things not only the items you mentioned but there's you know fish bladder there's other things that are scary and years and years ago. There was blood. blood. Yeah. So, you know, that it's scary. But as a foodie, Kim, is is a vegan a generational thing? Do you see the younger generations following vegan rules? I know vegans of all ages. If I I can't say that it is any one particular generation. I know folks my age, I know folks younger than myself, and I know quite a few who are older than myself who are vegans. So no, I don't think it is generational. So when at the restaurant, if someone is ordering as vegan, do you see them reaching out for the vegan wines or do they even know? I don't think people even know. Yeah. Honestly. That's what I find too. And I think it's interesting if you're that, I don't want to say strict, if you're that dedicated to being vegan, why you would not think of the beverages as well. Because you might not even know that it's a question to ask. Like that's what I think. I think it's that you don't know what you don't know in this case, because we've talked before about how people have this romantic idea of wine as this natural product that is just grapes that have been pressed and, you know, the magic of fermentation and then it gets put in a bottle. Like the the fact that there is so much technically that goes on to produce a fine wine and then if you talk about more industrialized, more commercial brands that are more like a science lab. I don't think people know that and understand that. So I don't think that a lot of people would know to ask the question, could there be something that is animal-based in my wine? Honestly, I don't think that people would ask. Do you think that um, this is trending because more people are understanding it's a a new wine thing or because more people are becoming vegan food I think because more people are becoming vegans. And so then they're asking the question, is this wine vegan. So I think it's a learning process for everyone and for people who have certain uh, dietary rules that they like to stick to. I I think as people are questioning their food and where it comes from and what's in it a little bit more, uh, that's why we're seeing a little bit more of this push towards uh, wines being labeled or made and or made as vegan. We talked a lot too in the past about vegan stuff where there's apps that people can go on to find out if the wine is covered, if it's vegan or not. And every time I've looked at them, they're so outdated 
needed. And a lot of times they would just say, call the call the people and ask. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't call, you know, Gallo and get pretty much get that information. So you have to be careful on the information on the internet that says things. Years ago, I remember seeing uh, something about, you know, beers. They were saying they were, and then the people saying they weren't. So you have to really research them. And it's hard with out. wine that changes vintage to vintage. So you might have one wine one year and then, you know, the next vintage comes out and it's almost like relearning an entirely new wine. There might be a different blend of grapes in there. They might have purchased fruit from a different place. The winemaking might have changed. Yeah. It's interesting you said that because I met a, well, I was on a big vegan kick labeling them. And the only way I would label them is if I met the winemaker and asked them. And I actually met a winemaker one time when I asked him, he, he didn't know what I was talking about. And I asked, well, do you use any animal product? He goes, well, you know, sometimes I use milk powder. And he goes, but this vintage I did, this vintage I didn't. So it was interesting from a, a winemaker's point of view, you know, sometimes they don't even know. Yeah. And I think that's probably know? fairly common, especially if you are, you know, a smaller producer and you're trying to do the right things and do it hands on and not have it be this mass produced industrial thing. You do make changes from vintage to vintage because you're dealing with fruit and ripeness might be different. You might be going for a different style. There are all these factors because you're dealing with an agricultural product. So the winemaker making different choices in the winery from vintage to vintage is very, very common. So do you see this one trending? Yeah, I do. Yeah, I do. I'm going to say thumbs up for for this one. What was the last top five trend? The last one was sustainability in packaging and the use of renewable energy. And I think the sustainability in packaging thing kind of goes hand in hand with the canned wine because glass is heavy. It's expensive to ship. There are all these little things that wineries can do to be a little bit more environmentally aware and sustainably think about their product, like not shipping in glass, like we talked before about uh, New Zealand wines being shipped by tanker in big bladders and then uh, bottled in glass bottles when they are at the destination where they're going to be sold and consumed. That's one way that you can think about sustainability. And I know for a lot of smaller wineries, what they're starting at their home base. So they're revamping their winery They're looking into different energy sources, whether it's thermal or whether it's solar or whether it's water. You know, there are all of these things that winemakers are trying to be environmentally smart about. Yeah. And with climate change, always a a hot topic. I think people don't look at what impact on the environment doing these little things to wine can can help. You know, transportation goes down, so you're using less fuels. They also, a lot of wineries now won't put that little capsule on top of the wine. And you think about the resources it takes to make that capsule. So little things like that, right. I think, are changing over the years. And I think even people to the point when they're buying wine, they're, they're uh, using their own bags type of thing mm-hmm. is also, to me, related to this subject. So something interesting to watch. It'd be nice if we could get to reusing bottles. Because I, I mean, I know I go through a lot of wine. So there's always a lot of uh, wine bottles being thrown in my recycling. And I, I feel like I wish that there was more that I could do Well, we recycle the corks. <laughs> You know, it's true. I don't know what else we could do. I mean, if you want to bring it back and refill it. You know, <laughs> if we happen. were in Italy, we'd be doing that. Yeah. Thank you for listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We've been your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. And also past episodes are on SoundCloud and iTunes. Cheers. Bye, bye, bye.